that's how, that that kind of is is kind of how my leaning has always been. Where I don't have a million choices. All doors shut, one door opens. It's just kind of how it's always been for me. Our guest this week is Lifetime producer Jeffrey David. Jeff has worked in the music industry for the entirety of his life, producing tracks independently and also as a musical director for his church. He has collaborated with superstars like Zed and built his success from the ground up. Most recently, in addition to being a top-tier producer, he also manages the chart-topping band Echosmith, who also happens to be his family. Jeff joins us to discuss his experience in the music industry and how a glass-half-full mentality can make all the difference on this episode of The Big Break. Where are you? Uh, where are you calling us from today? Well, I live in Pasadena, California, right by the ro- famous Rose Bowl, where they do the Rose Parade, mm-hmm. and uh, it's twenty-five minutes, you know, from downtown LA, which has now become kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. You're you're at home with the rest of us, at home together, as it were. How's um, how you guys been coping with with all of this, stay, staying at home? Well, it's interesting because uh, I mean, the the big bite, of course, is uh, is the fact that the band that I manage, you know, Echo Smith, mm-hmm. uh, they can't tour. So that's going to drag. But when we're off tour, we're pretty much home anyway. My, I have a full, you know, recording studio here. I have uh, artists that are coming in and out and people usually just come to me. So in some ways it's not really any different. Are you able to, are you able to get some recording sessions done? Uh, even with, uh, I mean, are you doing it, you doing it there in the studio or are you, are you doing it virtually or have you been playing around with anything like, um, no, I'm not really, no, we're not, what we've been mostly doing is I've been, uh, sort of taking this time to sort of, we just finished a headliner tour for Echo Smith and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I produced their record too and I'll get into that later, but mm-hmm. it just took some time to sort of take a breather cause we've been grinding. We just released a record and shot 12 music videos. And so we've just been using this time to, Take a breather. We actually kind of became obsessed about, uh, you know, buying and selling stocks, which has been fun. And, uh, <laughs> and that's been cool. And doing that. And then the band, we decided to, to not totally take time off, but to, to grind it out and also launch what we call a digital world tour. So we basically have been booking shows. We have about 15 on the docket uh, that we've been doing from our great room called it's called living room for everybody else, but in these old Pasadena homes, you call them a great room because it's a big old large space. It's kind of fancy. And uh, back in the day, people used to eat one in one section and have s- some cigs in another section and then <laughs> dancing in another and someone playing piano. It's uh, kind of like a mini ballroom in a way, you know, really oh. cool. All right. All right. Well, listen, I know, I know we're, we're going to dig into to a lot of that here in, in a little bit. I think that's, I think that's interesting in itself. So I'll definitely keep my notes down for that, but let me, let me get started. If I could, uh, maybe we could start a little bit earlier and just, you know, I, what, the first question I always ask was basically taking the way back machine here and, and just talking a little bit about your early life and how you first kind of got into music in general. I don't even mean as a career, right? I'm talking about just as someone who, um, just began appreciating music in maybe a different way than, than, than others might, you know? Yeah. Well, I was really young and uh, I started with piano and uh, it was one of those things that my parents really pushed me to do. Nobody in the family was really musical. Uh, they sang in like the church choir, stuff like that. But 
I reluctantly did it, but I, I was always singing and always like really into the radio and records. I had an older brother who was listening to all this um, old school stuff. He's way older than me. So he was into like the Doobie Brothers and uh, the early like Paul or like Wings and stuff. I didn't even really know who the bands were. It, I, I didn't appreciate it then. And I associated it with a, a really funny memory because whenever I now, even to this day, whenever I hear like, I didn't even know this song was like that song is like doing what the man says or any of that. Yeah. 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 Those kinds of song. I have a terrible memory and here's why, because my older brother, I was four or five, I don't know, five, maybe I remember him putting his, all his friends were over. It was real smoky and he was putting his face over this thing that had bubbles that he was blowing into and smoke was coming out. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and I remember telling my parents, uh, Cause I feel like he wasn't giving me attention. So I remember telling my parents, he wasn't really watching me. He was just with his friends playing with this bubble machine and listening to this music. And then all I remember, all I remember next is hearing to this music, doing what the man, my brother being spanked with a belt by my dad. Everyone, you jerk. Doing whatever I hear, dude, any of that stuff. I picture my brother fully getting spanked with a belt. Because I told on him, and I didn't yeah, know. you know, what I it's it's, what? it's the 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 sounds of corporal punishment to you know uh, a Paul McCartney seventies refrain. That's that's fantastic. I love it. And I, so, honestly, yet, to this day, I, it's 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 a joke. I I can have fun with it now, but I really don't like hearing that stuff. I don't I don't really appreciate it. I don't like it, and uh, it's because of that. That's really that's an interesting story. I love that. But so then that's that. But it, it kind of raises the question though. Like that was your that might have been maybe your earlier or earliest uh, you know music memories and whatnot. But what was the 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 thing that made you kind of dive into it more? I mean, the, the reason I ask this question is that you know everyone I could talk to anybody and everyone's you know everyone has different layers of how much they like music. You know, lots of people are music fans. Some of us are yeah. a little more music nerdy than others and, and that kind of thing. But but then there's another layer of folks like you know yourself that that went from just enjoying music as a listener to someone that went to actually, well, usually starts with performing music and then onwards to creating music. And that's a different layer. And I always, I'm always kind of curious as to how that layer formed. Well, everybody has a different, uh, you know, a different road getting there. So I grew up and I was, uh, you know, I started playing piano and I was really, really, really into it. So once I, once I discovered, once I played, learned how to play a song, I was so hooked and so, and just so into it. Uh, nobody had to ask me to practice. I was nonstop playing every moment that I possibly could. And uh, early, you know, I did that all through elementary and was in like piano competitions, really getting into classical music. And I studied with someone only took three teachers. I grew up down in San Diego in Coronado, it's called. And, uh, and I quickly realized at all these piano competitions that I was never going to be good enough to beat out all these kids that I was competing against. So I would practice two, three hours a day. And there was kids that I was playing against who were Russian or from different parts of the world that just had a, the most insane practice discipline and schedule to the kind of families that they were in, that they would just play like they would be practicing five hours a day and they're just slaughtering me at these competitions. So I'm like, I'm never going to get those classical gigs. You know, there's only like a hundred of them. Uh, that are real that you can make a living from. I knew early on. So I'm like, I, I'm in love with, I also love bands. So I was like early on, you know, getting now I'm in junior high and I learned how to play drums too. So then I discovered U2. And for me, U2 was everything. 
I loved all the alt indie stuff too, the alarm, uh, the English beat, all that kind of stuff. I loved that stuff, 80s music. So I was playing in bands and I played drums in one and I played and I sang in another. I, I learned to play guitar. I felt like piano was a great basis to learn all these other instruments. They were kind of easy for me because piano was was just so- It's the foundation, right? It's like the foundation. That's, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and that's why you always, whenever you're looking in like a, a heavy situation with a keyboard player, the keyboard player is probably by far the heaviest musician and they're the most knowledgeable because it's it's kind of holding the whole thing together. You're like, you sort of become a producer kind of from day one if you're playing piano in a band, talking about arrangements and stuff. So Right, yeah, you got you got to know both sides of it, both clefs, both the uh, you know, the back and the front, the whole nine yards. Yeah, the whole thing. And so I played band drums in some bands, and then I, like I said, I played keys and sang in another one. But I uh, I quickly learned also, even though I was like kind of the best drummer in my school, not that their competition was so crazy because it was Coronado was an island, it's a tiny little school, but I've, I always realized whatever band I was in, everybody had an opinion about what the drummer should do. <laughs> and uh, it's the only instrument that everyone has an opinion. People have no idea how to play drums, and you're using all four limbs. It's like one of the hardest instruments on earth to play. All four limbs are playing something completely independent. Yet a bass player dude who's playing at the time, roots only, has a million ideas for what I should be doing. And it just really drove me nuts. And uh, as a keyboard player and, and a and kind of young budding producer, I'm like, I know more than this guy could ever tell me. I don't. So I could drums were never enough, and I was I didn't want to be in the position of people having an opinion every second. So I got into college. I went to school a school called Azusa Pacific University. By this time, I started to do gigs, side gigs. I would go play uh, like I discovered jazz too. So I'd go play a jazz gig on drums or keys in another, and I started to get paid. And uh, I really liked it. And I always ended up being the leader of the bands. And one reason was I was the most driven by far. And secondly, I realized if you were the leader, you could get paid a little bit more because you probably were the dude getting the gig. You're probably finding the gig. So uh, I always had a business side. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, let me jump in here just real quick. So, uh, first of all, you went to college. What were you? What were you? Uh, what did you go to college to study? Uh, at that time? Composition and then drum. Oh, okay. So you were going in for music. Yeah, for music. It's a private school called Azusa Pacific University, and uh, I went there, and I and I really loved it. And um, and then in terms of the gigs that you were picking up, how were those? developing were you out seeking them out were they're like you know this is the paper with the little you know the little phone number that you rip off the bottom type of thing like how, how are you getting hooked up with these other i'm other groups i'm creating my own destiny at all times that's probably the one thing that is for sure in every level that i've had to do i've had to go get it i've had okay. to go open the door i've had to go figure it out hustle you know there's stuff i'll get into later that just explains a lot of the stuff i just grinded out but uh okay. So I would so you were go, seeking these out. I would seek them out. I literally would go spend, you know, either be on the phone. They didn't have cell phones very much then. I'd be on the phone or I would go to every restaurant or wherever my wife and I, I got married early too. I'll get into that. But whenever we went out to eat, uh, I would ask to speak to the manager and start off with a compliment. Like, oh, I love the food, man. And uh, have you ever thought about having some live jazz here? <laughs> really cool, you know? And he's like, maybe. I'm like, well, let's play Friday night and I'll, I'll do it cheap. We usually get a thousand. We'll do it for 500. Um, and, and he was and like, "This is and this is one band that you have. So you're, you 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 have a band. You have you have a band that you're then hustling for. Then you and your band show up, or is that the case? Or do you have like different crews? No, it was, it was two bands that I was I was the leader of. So one was what called their names? Dorian Gray. Another one's called Forty Third Street. Um, Dorian Gray. That's an interesting. Yeah, 
I don't even remember why we named it that. Some stupid reason. Uh, uh, <laughs> I remember Dorian Gray. I I played keys in, and then Forty Third Street. I purposely found monster musicians that were all way older than me, and I just I was now becoming obsessed about you know competing and and being as good as possible, and and I I had that band was really wonderful because that band also taught me so much on. Um, just everything about playing in a band, like holding down the groove about like not overplaying. And, and I still made more than all them because I booked the gig, but it was like going to school too. It was really cool. Okay. And now, and when you were in school, you're, you, you were, I forgot the you were studying music. I'll call it that basically. Yep. I forgot composition. Else. What was the, what was the, what was the goal there? What, 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 were you, what were you planning at least at that time to come out of school to do? Well, the thing is I didn't really know much to be honest. It's like, I didn't grow up in a family where it was like, Hey, here's, here's the path you should take. They knew that I was a music major and my parents and my dad was a business and my mom was a homemaker. They didn't really know what to tell me to do. So I went, I went to a music school and they didn't want me to go to one at the beach cause I was really getting into surfing and they figured I would just screw around and surf. And, uh, so I went to the school. I didn't really know other than I knew I wanted to do music for a living. Now at the same time I was, heavily involved uh at my local church wherever i went and uh back then it was really cool and there was a lot of innovation going on and a lot of great musicians were in there and then uh so on the weekends i would be playing and leading music at, at churches and uh that was super cool because i could really like i could learn so much by playing in front of people, these captive audiences of 500, a thousand people or something like that. And it really, it, that was like, that was massive in my development that I'll get more into that, but that the church world and what I ended up going on to do through the church world completely prepared me for every success I've ever had. Okay. So you knew you were into music, you know, you wanted to study music. You weren't really sure where that was going to go, but you figured, you know, get on the path and see where it leads and, and you'll figure things out along the way, basically. Correct. Roughly. If, yeah. If maybe be a session musician. I was into that. You know, I loved writing songs, but I didn't know. I would maybe do it all, you know? Right. So you yeah, just experience everything and see what really, uh, what really takes hold and whatnot. So did, did you finish school or did, or not? I did. I was okay. three credits shy, shy of, of the degree because I was finished and I was ready to walk. And then they're like, this conducting class you took, uh, doesn't qualify anymore. You got to do one more semester. I'm like, screw it. I'm not going back for one more semester. And already, you know, I did the full four years or whatever. So I'm like, just whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty much finished. All right, and then and then I because I know the church the church experience was. I mean, I you know reading through your bios and whatnot, you spent quite a bit of time as a musical director there. So was it was it right into that then? No. So the first three years, I got married in '92, uh, my last year of college, and my wife's first year. And we met, she played oboe and I, and we had to take this class. I despised it, but now I would appreciate it. But back then yet it was something where everybody had to sing in Latin and there was a full orchestra. I don't know why I didn't appreciate it. Cause I was a band. I was so into rock bands and jazz. Right. Um, anyway, and I saw her and she played oboe and I thought she was so cute. Anyway, we only knew each other six months and we eloped in Las Vegas and uh, freaked our parents out. This was not something that my parents were wanting us to do, you know? And, uh, Anyway, so the first three years of being married, I had those two bands, Dorian Gray and 43rd Street. And every single night, 
I was playing in a club and uh, my wife was with me. We had a kid right away. And uh, my little kid, my wife, it was like an outside terrace or something. We'd be playing jazz. My wife would come and then uh, we would go to Denny's after like midnight and then sleep in and shop or go to the beach and do the whole thing every again. So immediately we were like doing that thing. And then on the weekend I was uh, leading what they call worship music directing at, at churches. So three years doing that. And then all the clubs out of the blue completely just stopped. The clubs stopped. They stopped hiring you or they just every gig that was just dried up. Yeah. Everything dried up. Everything that was on the books gone. And then out of the blue, I get a call from this guy uh, named Dudley Rutherford, this kind of Southern preacher dude. And, uh, He's like, hey, man, we heard really good things about you. Would you be interested in being our music director? We're a really uh, fast-growing young church. A lot of really cool people go here. Some of the girls from In Vogue and a lot of session musicians. and all. It was in, it was in the Valley in L.A. And he goes, you can, you can really dream up any dream you can do as long as it's not, like, you know, uncomfortable or evil or something. Sure, it's got to be appropriate for the venue. It's a church. Like, uh-huh. Yeah. And, of course – you know, I believe in God stuff, so I'm not going to do anything that's going to push some weird edge anyway. So, um, in that in that environment, so I accepted it, and I felt like that was a clear sign, and that's ha- that that kind of is is kind of how my leading has always been, where I don't have a million choices, all doors shut, one door opens. It's just kind of how it's always been for me, and. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, so I can see a lot of people kind of bemoaning that to a certain extent, right? Like, you know, I had all these doors, I was doing all these things, and all of a sudden they all shut, and, and, and only, like, quote unquote, only one became available. That's one sort of bemoaning perspective. But then the other perspective is more like, well, that's, you know, all this other, all these other distractions went away and the clear path emerged. I mean, there's different ways of, it's a mindset and how you kind of decide how you want to uh, respond to that kind of situation. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know, we're, Sometimes it's just like, for me, it's just like, I need that, like, duh, that's the only door open, go move forward, you know? Okay. So. And so what did, so you were the, so what does that mean? Music director, what were you doing? You were just, just like, you had the whole band and you were directing the band, like a compo like a conductor or something like that. What is that? No, mean? no, it's, it's, it's hard to explain if you've never been in it, but if you can just Google for any of your listeners can Google, go look up a church called Hillsong United or Hillsong. Oh, Hillsong. Yeah. That kind of thing. So I was you know, early on this stuff. So way early in the nineties, I, I told the pastor, I'm like, if you, if you let me really control my budget, the music department budget, I'm going to use it to pay guys. And I'm going to make the music so compelling the very first weekend. Like I'm going to make it world-class the first weekend. If you let me control this budget and spend the money on people rather than lights or new keyboards or whatever people spend money on in these environments. And nobody was paying musicians at the time. Like that was not something you did. You basically had guys that go to the church, use them. And some dude that, you know, kind of plays guitar, picks up a guitar and plays in your band. No, I, to- I, I totally get it. I've, yeah, I've, I've mean, been there. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like weekend warriors, nothing that, not, not that there's anything wrong with having a day gig, but if no. you don't care about your instrument, I'm certainly not going to let you learn in front of a thousand people on a weekend. No dice. And I told the pastor, basically, he's like, are you going to let someone learn how to speak on the weekend for you? You know what I mean? And he's like, oh, no, I get it. Once you start so putting he, uh, 
you, you approach this as a job. This was a, this is your this isn't like a hobby. You're not going to no, no, this is a full time job. This yeah. is your career. This is, you have you have a passion about this that that is equal to if not more maybe than 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 just going to church on weekends. Not to not to criticize anyone who does that, like you said. But you're taking this from a professional uh, standpoint. You want others around you to have that same professional standpoint. Exactly. Now the thing is, is like I never really. Of course, I've always been in charge, right? So each environment that I was in, I was in charge. I was a leader. So this was more of that putting bands together. So I was really in this kind of vibe of like, I'm going to to take this to another level, and I'm going to really push the boundaries musically on on what what I could do. So <clears throat> immediately I was like in this thing of like every week, and this is probably weird now. Maybe it was too. It's too much now, but at I had this approach of every weekend that you came, we were never going to give you the typical expected. So I got to do anything I wanted, man. I was like, I had ska bands. I was like using DJs that like scratched, like turntable scratchers, like, what, what, you know, and samples and like, and I would like put a DJ together with like some of the girls from In Vogue and like, and then a string section, like stuff that nobody was doing or like a ska band with like a string quartet. Just, I just would wanted. I wanted to make it as musically compelling as possible. And the cool part was I had to pretty much write a new song every week on whatever the pastor was speaking on. So that was massive. That was massive training right there because I could learn and and see how a song affected as this church was growing into the thousands. Now how a song that I wrote either moved people or didn't. And and how certain things that I did and arranged and, and putting different instruments and people together or using a cello or ending in a minor key or whatever that is, I could start seeing in real life how it could make people cry or smile or, and I would get letters all the time and people would be like, Oh my gosh, that song. I felt like you just told my life story. Were you looking at my diary? And so you start to get this feedback of what works as a songwriter and a producer. And that was massive. That's really interesting. I mean, and, and so there's actually two levels to that, right? One is the songwriter component, like you're, and even on top of it, you're talking, you, you're, you're not just writing completely out of the blue. You're writing to a theme that is being set and that's changing on a regular basis. So you, there's a, there's a collaboration there with, with the, 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 I guess the pastor giving the, giving the sermons and things like that. Correct. So on one hand, you have to kind of understand where the, where he's going with it and create something that fits that theme. And then the other hand, you have to also then interpret that for the others that you're bringing in to actually do the, you know, the, the, the perform the songs and things like that. So you've, you got to manage the rest of the crew at the same time. That's, I could just, ima- I could just see how that's a great sort of test bed, safe test bed area for you to develop skills in that regard. Yeah. And then all this, and then stuff that you don't realize that you're doing is like, okay, now I'm over 300 people in the arts department that I'm over. I'm hiring and firing. I'm over a large budget. I have to be in charge of every single thing that happens around the message. <clears throat> and all of a sudden you're like giving feedback to like, maybe the mayor's there to guest and do the welcome. And you got to like shave off 30 seconds or you, or I remember <laughs> having to interact with John Wooden, that famous UCLA coach who went there. Yeah. John, that was a rad welcome, but we got to cut off 45 seconds because 7,000 kids get out after the service for the next service that there's going to be a traffic jam or whatever. And so it taught me to like also not be too precious about my art and also to be in these environments that normally a typical like musician would, I would never, a typical musician would never be giving John Wooden feedback on his welcome for the morning and, sh- and working <laughs> crap. So sure. it, it kept putting me, I kept showing up in places. I remember I got to lead music and it was like with all these head NFL 
coaches. Like I started to be in places that weren't your typical music settings. It was really fun. And it just taught me a lot. And I kept learning and, and taking. How big was this church? I mean, this is, this isn't just like the corner chapel here, right? No, I mean, now that church is 15,000 people. So, Unbelievable. So okay. you got to realize that this is run like a full on U2 concert. But back then it's like nobody was doing like what we were doing. No one was using DJs and stuff. I'm not talking like Zed and we love Zed. I know him. I'm talking like yeah. scratchers, like guys, you know, in the eighties and stuff. Yeah. Even though yeah, they were the original DJs. Yeah. This is like mid late nineties, but still, uh, it just, again, if this whole environment of especially hiring and firing and, and then forecasting out, eight, 10, 12 weeks on what the pastor was speaking on and having grids and songs. And then we started to write dramas with actors and we would start to incorporate different things within the music, like mixing media. So we used to do this thing all the time. We're like, instead of a bridge to a song. So let's say a song's like, we never talk about it. And it's a song that I wrote. And it's this thing about relationships. Instead of a bridge, a vocal bridge, all of a sudden, maybe we have like an actor stand up in the middle of the audience that no one knows as an actor and be like, hey, wait a minute. All I, and they maybe they have a mini argument with his fake wife or whatever. Or, you know, one hilarious example. And this doesn't always go good. It sounds like it's all going great, right? The way I'm describing. But I remember specifically... We wanted to mix media with with video. So not like a music video, but like, you know, a movie clip within like a song, like a, instead of a bridge, let's play this movie clip. So one particular instance, this went well a lot, but one particular time uh, it didn't go so well. And the guy who was the editor, he couldn't uh, do the edit. So I had to by hand have the guy in the booth. And you have a full tech booth, like, you know, 10 people in there working you know, on lighting and cameras and sound, all this. So you have the guy, it was a DVD player that was going to push play and push stop. It was already cued. You can't mess this up, right? So the song's happening. I'll use that. Never talk about it again. Example, you know, we never talk about it. The song I wrote, here comes the bridge. It's going to be rad. It's going to be this Bruce Willis moment. And then all of a sudden, uh, push play. The guy panics, accidentally pushes forward, panics, push play. And all you hear is, <laughs> You, you mother effer. Oh my goodness. And then, and so then that was the bridge, you know, and then <laughs> that wasn't cool. You know what I mean? So, no, that, no, 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 but that, it happens, you know, and then the pastor gets up. He's like, Hey, well, you heard it here first. I didn't say it, you know, something joke. He made a joke of it, which I, I appreciate, but, uh, so yeah. you're in this. You this is great. It. This is fantastic. You're in. A, you're in this really wonderful sandbox on, on, on that, that's that's exposing to so many things. You get to write and be wildly creative in all these different formats, like you just mentioned. Sometimes you screw it up. Sometimes you don't. You're in the business. You're understanding the budgeting. You're understanding the the, the people management. You're 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 directly collaborating with with uh, the pastor on kind of writing the songs. You're, you're, it's it's great. it sounds fantastic, right? But I'm just kind of wondering: is there a point here while you're doing all this stuff where you're kind of thinking? Is this is this sandbox getting too small for me? I need to do more. You well, know, I want I want I need to stretch my wings here a little bit outside of this of, of the church. Yeah, what was happening that I noticed right away was the fact that I also was you know having zillions of meetings of 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 confrontations or firing people or and all of a sudden it was like this is not nearly as fun and we're putting we're trying to take this at such a next level that we're we're kind of we're kind of making, trying to make everything too perfect. And so that, that became a thing where like if a welcome or a song didn't go exactly as planned or literally perfect, my whole week started to feel ruined. 
Right. From, from, from able to work in a setting with almost no expectations, and now the expectations are sort of driving the, 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 the ship a little bit. Yeah, because we also were like all about like the thing that I learned in there, this is, this is a huge one. It's all about casting vision, right? And so you're casting vision all the time, and you're like wanting to make these weekends amazing, and, uh, and you have 168 hours in a week. We should make these five services, five hours. We should make them as meaningful as possible. So that was happening, and I was getting – not bummed, but a little burned. And it's like, gosh, all these people that I'm over and I have to fire friends, people that like quit a job that, you know, that I wanted to hire and they ended up not being very good at it. And you have to fire your friends, you know, that quit like real jobs that like a serious job. He's going to be your technical director, you know, and he comes to work for you and then he ends up sucking at his job. Well, well, there's no room to suck and you hopefully you get better and you give him feedback, but if they keep sucking, you got to get rid of them just like any job. And again, you know, so whatever. So at the same time, I was producing records inside the church. So the church, I basically built in a budget that I could do my own records. I wrote these songs, these worship songs are called, and I could be producing these records, kind of my own art outlet and people would buy them. The church would, of course, uh, you know, pay for it and they get a nice cut of it. And then I would get some, it wasn't about that, but it was teaching me how to produce records uh, with someone else's budget. And then I was taking what I was learning live at these services in front of thousands of people and incorporating in the studio. And I loved having a hodgepodge of musicians that normally would never know each other and okay. what would happen. Very Quincy Jones, let great people do great things, you know, set up mm-hmm. the table, you know, so to speak. And I was getting really into the studio. So, and then in, and then artists within the church and then outside the church were asking me to produce their record. So the same exact time, and I was never satisfied with doing one thing. So, full-time legitimate real job in the church over 300 staff churches thousands of people now producing records equally pretty much full-time as a growing artist or songwriter keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid it's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties they were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy-to-understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. Now, when you say producing records for artists in the church, let's get to that because you mentioned that this church had some relatively big names in attendance. You mentioned the the, the girls from En Vogue, for instance, and whatnot. Is are, what, what are we talking about here? Is, is this how you're getting your producer jobs with folks that are, you know, congregants uh, of the church, asking yeah, you to produce yes. their, yeah. their records? Well, a side thing that happens, which is re- which is really fun, is the fact that you're you're doing your thing, and then you're like. You're, you're not doing it for this reason, but it just happens this way. So the music is just killing at this church, okay? And everyone knows it. it's me. Like, And so, you know, I have John Patitucci, Mike Elizondo, Chris Chaney, all these amazing musicians and singers. 
And uh, people are like, this guy's really good. So people that go to the church, you know, they want to go to a cool church and music school. And, you know, what drives these kinds of churches is great music, great kids, great preaching, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, just people would approach me all the time. It's like, hey, would you be willing to produce my record? I'll give you five grand. I'll give you seven grand. I'll give you 10 grand. It's like, you know, all self-funded, you know, and I was, I didn't get to do anything big yet. Uh, but I was definitely getting my chops and I'm glad I didn't get to do anything gigantic from the start. It was, uh, it was great to get my chops up and. Oh, for sure. And and we're going to get back to that, uh, kind of when we wrap things up, because I like to kind of pull the themes out and sort of summarize them, but like, let's get, let's get to, let's move to like the, you know, when did these were all good little one-off projects and whatnot. What was the big, I don't know. Was, was there was there one uh, quantum leap that happened here in terms of who you were writing for, or who you were producing for? No, I was just cranking. I was literally the guy for indie records where I lived. I and I was you know married. And I was having a bunch of kids too, so I was just I was just making it a wonderful living producing indie records. I was making like on average like twenty thousand dollars a month at times. You know, and it's like okay, okay I, I think I want to be done with the church thing. I want to still go to church. My faith hasn't changed. But I don't want to be hiring and firing in over 300 people. And want so your side gig became the main gig. My side gig became the main gig. And uh, I took all those things that I learned, casting vision, hiring and firing, managing budgets, being a nice person, being good to work with. And I, and I started to produce, produce any records. And uh, it was – And how are these – and how is this coming to you? Is this, is this still basically people that, that, that they're members of the church and they're reaching out to you? No, or? I didn't go to the – I decided not to go to that same church anymore. So okay. I wanted to get out of there. But everyone knew who I was kind of in that area. Uh, it was you know 30 minutes east of Los Angeles called Chino and uh-huh. uh, in kind of Orange County. And just uh-huh. like you were doing an indie record you and you didn't have $200,000 – and you want it to be great, you're probably going to go to me or a few other people. You know, at the time, this guy Busby was doing a lot. So this is just a general network. You know, the the, the community knew of each other. There wasn't any yes. you know, particular yeah, know, shingle on the wall. Because or you, like would, you would go, you know, if you did a record for somebody and they would go share it with all their friends, whether it did great or not. Okay. You know, word of mouth. And I always would try to outdo myself, even if that meant I didn't make much money. But uh, I, figured, I figured out some things quickly how to – really be useful with my time. I became super fast in the studio and I would use guys that if I wasn't playing on it, like I have one guy, this guy, Aaron Sterling is just a brilliant drummer. And this guy, Matt Bissonette, who's a brilliant bass player, just played on a zillion records. Well, these two guys could memorize songs like you would most of the time they didn't even need a chart. So they could literally memorize it was they have weirdo memories, photographic musical memories, and they can memorize a song. And so after hearing it once, especially Aaron and this guy's like, to the point where you would, I remember one of my friends used him and, and he showed him a song. He's like, this is a song we're going to do in two weeks. And then he came to the session two weeks later and my friend somehow lost the session. He's like, oh my gosh, he just got there and, and Aaron was all set up with Cartage and all this. Like, I lost the session. And, and you're like, what was it called? He's like, oh, this one. He goes, oh, that one you played for me in the car. Oh, I know it. So like two weeks later, he still knew it after hearing it one time in the car, like for real, every single part. So we just played it down to a click with no music and it was perfect. I could use my friend Aaron and Matt and they could do up to 20 to 25 songs in a day. So I would record drums and bass. And they, I mean, these are the who's who of players and they could do like 20 to 25 songs in a day. And it was brilliant takes. I could get great stuff out of them and they were great. All right. So yeah, you're, so you're, you're banging the stuff out time in the studio is money, right? As we all know, 
So you're so you're you're efficient and it's and it's working and you and you and people are coming back to you and 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 so on. That's and and so then like what happened? I mean, I'm just I'm looking through the bio. I'm like, how does this lead to say, you know, some of the some of the 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 more recognizable household names that you that you work with? Not not to dismiss the indies because trust me, that's 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 a career right there. Oh, yeah, you know well, here's the thing. Remember, I told you how like my path had been like one of everything goes away or whatever. So all of a sudden, yeah. all the indie records. <laughs> went away. Okay? They went. The, they went the way of the clubs. So, so one huge piece of this thing is okay. So I got married twenty two ish. You know, my wife was eighteen. We were having kids right away. I was doing this church thing, making records. Artists were in and out of the house all day long, and I was having kids. So I had four kids, dude. Like really quickly. Okay, I always wanted uh-huh. a big family. My wife's really cool, rad cook, and whatever. And so these kids were around all of these session guys. And I've like, from day one, my kids had drum machines, keyboards, guitars, this kind of thing. So I had these brilliant musicians who were brilliant, like really early. So I was going to help them skip all the dorky steps that I had to go through, like no shredding, no like prog music, no, like let's get, let's, let's be listening and grow yourself on like YouTube and Coldplay and like songwriter, real songs. So that's a massive part of it. So when I quit the church in 2006-ish, I had this other little side business I won't get into called The Lesson House that I started that was actually very successful. I sold that in 2008, okay? Um, and I was producing all these indie records and it was everything was going, uh, was, was going wonderful. Well, all the indie records go away. But at the same time, my kids were super serious. I would use them in the studio in the session. They're like, we want to, we want to be a band and we want to be serious about it. Um, so that was part of the journey of me quitting the church. So I'm producing records in 2008. I quit the church. Um, and they're serious about being a band. This is completely part of the whole story mm-hmm. that I was developing this band, my four kids who were brilliant, like a young Coldplay, like brilliant players and writers. And, uh, so I quit and right at the time I was producing records and I quit the church, we got in the studio and wrote this song called iPod. And so I didn't really know anybody, even in the church world. I knew some of these artists and I knew like loads of session musicians, but I didn't really know anybody in the music industry at all. Okay. I didn't know record label people. I didn't know publishers. I was cold calling and emailing. And I subscribed to this service called Music Express. And it was a directory that had everybody's email Uh and phone number in it. Okay. This was crucial to me getting anywhere. This was massive because when I quit, unlike most dudes, they I had four kids. I had three of them in private school. I had a mortgage. Right. I had a Range Rover. Like I had like uh, that's those, expenses. Those yeah, those aren't bragging points. These are pressure points. No, no, I totally get it. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I I day one have to be completely grinding. So I am reaching out all over planet Earth, and on average, I'm not joking. I'm sending at least a hundred cold emails out five days a week all over okay. planet earth all over planet earth so what i started doing was my indie records uh, what started happening what really wanted me to get out of it and i'm glad i did was what you find is you anybody that has real money 80 percent of them are really like not great let's just be really honest it's a soccer mom it's a whatever it's a person it's someone who married money whatever it is because real artists in general are broke. They don't know how to have a job. They're just, they don't sure. have, have any money. So these, the indie par- part of this whole thing was I, w- I, I was really feeling like 
I could get, I can get stuck in this thing. Even though I'm making ten, twenty thousand dollars minimum every month, cranking it out, I don't want to get stuck in this. I want to produce real records. I want to write songs that the world, right. the world hears. So what I started doing was I wrote most of the songs on every single. I pretty much wrote all of them, all the songs on these indie records, and and I would reuse that track, and I would begin to write songs to those tracks from those indie records that those records didn't go anywhere because maybe someone. Well, they were decent or whatever, but maybe they didn't sell or like I had these brilliant sounding tracks. So I started to write songs of the tracks, send these tracks out all over the world for top liners to write to. And then I started to get cuts on other artists because the tracks sounded sick. All we needed was new melodies. Now we never in general, the first, all the first cuts, none of those original exact versions of someone's indie record using that track. Those, none of those got released, like rehashed to be released, but they were great writing ground. They were great inspiration grounds to write something brand new and redo a track later to a whole new song. But I basically had hundreds and hundreds of these tracks that I made that sounded brilliant. Then, then I started to get cuts. And so then for a minute before I quit the indie thing and they went away, that was actually fueling and helping grow my songwriting career. And I was getting placements with real artists. And uh, at the same time I wrote that, I go back to that song we wrote called iPod with uh Echo Smith, my four kids. And there was a feeding frenzy with people I only read about coming to my house, obsessed about the band. And, uh, one now, of the- hold on a second. I, I need to jump in here. So I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I might be a little off on the timeline. So, um, maybe you can set me straight. So, so Echo Smith is, is, is your band, but I, I also know that, you know, you were working with this, with this, whoop, with this, you know, so you, you quit the church, you were doing the, you're doing the indie stuff. I'm just looking at the list of, of some other artists here that you've worked with, like, you know, like uh, Zed and Seal, and you've got the cuts on the voice and Glee and whatnot. Did all that happen before you started talking about what you're talking about now with, with Echo Smith, or is Echo Smith leading to that? Echo Smith led all of that. Okay, that's what I'm trying to – okay, good. Sorry. Didn't want to interrupt, but I was a little bit off on my timeline, no, that's, so that's, that's what good. I wanted to understand. No, so, you, so, no. you, so you cut this you – cut, you, you create the song, bam, it's getting attention. People are, are hitting you up. It's, yeah. So I, I start, it, it didn't, I mean, people are hitting me up songwriters and stuff like that. So yes, I mean, it isn't going crazy, but I am, things are happening. I'm getting more cuts. Now publishers are like, okay, this is cool. That's a great song. Who wrote that? Oh, Jeffrey David. Oh, he's really cool. And Maybe he wrote I, something else. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time though, it was all very tied in where I was like, you know what? My, my way up to really be known is to develop this band and, and, make them as successful as humanly possible and be completely attached to it because I was developing the whole thing. I not only was like helping write every single song and producing records, I was like funding stuff. I was, I was sparing no expense to go chase this dream. And so my main focus was at the time before the indie record stopped was fully developing Echo Smith as far and big as I could get them and getting them a record deal. And getting cuts at the same time by other artists. That was the focus. And the, the way that it paid bills was the indie records. I see. Okay. So as I'm looking at all of this stuff, I'm looking, I mean, these are, these are, these are very interesting and also very unique ways of, of um, a lot of the different careers that I've, that I've, you know, discussed and on this show and that you had all the stuff that you were doing sort of externally, right? Church and the, and the indie records and all these things. But, you know, the title of the podcast is The Big Break, right? And if I were to, you know, if I were to ask you what your big, big break was, it sounds like, and this is where you tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like your big break was really discovering your own children and writing the song with them. It was developing my own Coldplay in, that was in my house. That's amazing. 
<clears throat> and just to give you perspective, like this, this doesn't just happen by sending people in the garage and all of a sudden they come out like this, right. this is the most intense development that you could ever imagine. And, and it wasn't intense. Like it wasn't fun. Cause it was so fun. We, we were having the time of our lives, but <clears throat> yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a connected project and what well, it, the, the, that's got to be tough, though. I mean, you're working with family. Is, 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 these aren't people that quit a job, came to work for you, didn't cut it, and had to get fired. You're not firing one of your kids now. So, like, you know, how do how do you how do you how do you do that? I mean, that, that's I mean, I'm a father. I totally get it. And um, but like you have you have this group, and this group is the group. These are your four kids. They're not they're not like you're going to replace the bass player with someone else necessarily, right? Well, if they start being a jerk, I'm joking. Well, it isn't. It isn't. <laughs> Well, just to put it in perspective, it isn't like, it isn't like that either. It isn't my band, you know, now I'm developing them. We have mutual respect. This is, and, and to put this in total perspective, part of like all the stuff I learned at church and and people that was such a large church and so successful, the people were so successful there. We learned so much about like creating the kind of family that we wanted to have. So I didn't say day one, I'm going to have a band that's going to come out of this family and this is what's going to happen. But day one, I was like, this is the kind of family I'm going to have a family that loves each other. That's going to be super musical and fun and lighthearted. And to see the world with a glass half full kind of perspective of anything's possible. Let's love people, love God, and let's have as much fun as we can. And and these kids being around all these session musicians and artists and and string sections and ska bands and all these things in and out of my house was such unusual. It was such an unusual thing that 99% of people just couldn't imagine it. You know, like if you were two years old and, you know, Michael Landau is like one of the biggest session guys that is over and, it's, and your little kid's like, dad, what's that? Oh, that's a, that's a 1960s Vox with a tremolo pedal. Want to try? Sure. You know, and then, then some session guy showing him how a chord is or me showing him or how that pedal sounds. So day one, they had people and things that would just nurture all that was just, all that was just around them to win. If they chose, yes. (laughs) If they so chose to go this route uh, and they did. So, so to fast forward a little bit, the indie record thing completely stopped. Now, before it, we have any success, the band had three big, huge hills and valleys that were that were feeding frenzies of people dying to sign the band, and then it not happening. The deal was weird. Something about the paperwork. The guy was we didn't feel right. Something wasn't right. And I was convinced that I was developing this band that I did not want them releasing music too early that was associated with being a little kid. Cause you got to realize like that becomes a gimmick, right? With the gimmick and everybody was like, you need a TV show. There's Hannah Montana. And we're like, Oh, here, oh, geez. you know, that whole thing. But this is like a real band, like real players that play to a click that can program drums are all great guitar players and drummers and harmonies. And they can write with any other artist. So I was like, we're not going to do that. Even though if it's the right TV thing, sure. We'll take, we'll take that as an outlet. Who wouldn't take it serious? You know? Um, so the three Hills and Valleys were people trying to sign the band. It wasn't right. Or it just didn't happen. Uh, that was hard to keep everyone's, you know, it was, it was a trick to try to make sure that not a trick, but it was a skill to have to learn to keep people, to keep young kids from getting fully like jaded, you know, at 12 years old 
after they've been told they're going to be signed three times by <laughs> all these labels and going out to eat and we're high-fiving and all this stuff. Uh, so one big part of it, how I got out of the indie records, I didn't want to get stuck. So in 2009-ish, 10-ish, 10, let's just call it 10, I think, all the indie records went away, like dried up, gone. And I had $267 to my name. Okay. Okay. I don't use credit cards. I'm never a person. I'm never going to go borrow money. I have three kids in private school. We've been chasing this dream. The money I took out of my house in 2006 to go chase this dream is all gone now. Okay. Sparing no expense with Echo Smith. I'm being smart. I know how to handle money, but it's all gone. And the indie records are gone. Just like the old school jazz gigs were gone. Then I had a new thing. So what happened was this was a crucial time. This was 2010. We had two big hills and valleys. The third hadn't come yet of people trying to sign the band and do all this stuff. So I had $267 and I'm like, we're in trouble. Now I'm not going to go put that burden on my kids, but I just made sure that we were careful how we spent. We weren't spending any money. And I said, mom's got to go to work and I've got to figure something out. Don't worry though. It's going to be great. Remember half class full. This is the environment we live in. So the kids are like, it's all good, daddy. We know God will take care of us and you're going to go make something happen. So that, again, it's the environment that we have. So I decide that I am going to basically figure out how to make money on eBay. Now this sounds like a weird left turn. Okay. And I had a full studio. So I'm like, I'm selling all my gear. I was always good at selling gear because it's like, if I bought some, I always made a profit because back in the church days, all those vendors would kiss my butt because we may redo a sound system for a million dollars. So every vendor was like, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, you know, mm -hmm. so I always got great deals and stuff. So long, long story short, I guess it's still long is I took a picture of the studio gear that I had. And I realized nobody was doing this in eBay. I took a picture. I took 10 pictures of all my studio gear, but had different things in it. I took a piece out, put a hat in one. I mean, just so it looked like I had 10 setups. Okay. And I knew right. I could replicate this setup, a full recording rig. I could replicate it in two days. I had a computer guy, I had a pro tools, dude, plugins, all this stuff. Mike's, oh, I, I, I could get it all cheap and make money. So I'm like, I have no idea. I have no money. I've got to figure this out. So I listed these 10 studio rigs and I made a hundred grand the first month. And now, hold on. This is all... Uh, my, this is all your own gear that you sold or you, or you took pictures of it and then got, and then sort of resold the gear as needed to fill all the orders. I, sold, I first sold my gear, but I knew I could get it in two days and I figured out, and this is part of like being a, a, I think a good producer or a, or just an entrepreneur, you've got to figure stuff out. So right. I noticed that in the eBay rules, they were like, okay, you have X number of days. You can choose what the days are. It's three to 10 days to basically ship out <clears throat> your order. And people see when they check out an order that what the deal is, how long they have. <clears throat> and I was always really honest with people. It's just like, hey, we're going to configure your computer. We're going to ship it out on Monday. We're going to whatever. Every. And so I basically sold. I, I, I started this thing. It's called the Pro Tools Guy 310 on eBay. And dude, for two years, I was making hand over fist. Now, I didn't make profit 100 that first month. I made like 30. Sure. And like I was making real money. For two years, and all of a sudden, I could completely get out of indie records, and I was just writing songs and going next level on developing Echo Smith. Now we are going even deeper with stuff, having huge guys mix demos and stuff like that. So, see, this that's a really important thing though that I want to touch on real quick, just because 
Like there's so many people out there that, you know, they say, okay, I'm a songwriter, I'm a producer, and I need to make my money being a songwriter or being a producer. And a lot of times what happens is that they then, they spend all their time doing maybe things that they, working on projects they may not want to work on because it's delivering the money to them based on what they quote should do as a songwriter or a producer. And if I'm hearing you right, what you did basically was in order to, in order to free up the, in order to give you the freedom you wanted to, 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 to spend time on doing the music and the projects that you wanted to do, you actually found a way to use other assets to drive them the money that you needed to, to pay for the time to do the things you wanted to do, not just the things that you had to do. That was a terrible way of explaining it, but I hope I got that across well. <laughs> does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, you know, it like it, it's like, like oh, I, I, I'm a writer, so I can only make money from writing. Well, no, I want to write a book, so I'm going to make money to do something else so I can afford the time to write the book I want to write. Otherwise, I'm spending all my time writing the, the other people's books. It, that that's a that's a great way to think of it, and and what it did was it was a really interesting thing, and you know I'm a person of faith, so I really feel like sure. God God was really using <clears throat> these stop moments, blocking the road, stop to refocus me because I'm a ding dong and I need like a bonk on the head. <laughs> be like go this way, and what what it did was it it what I wasn't telling you too was I was doing like a writing session every single day, five six days a week. Uh, during all that indie record time too and grinding it out. And then what that did was that let the making money from something else, it made me get a lot more choosy on the sessions. It also made me love doing music some more and I could say no to something if I wanted to, because I didn't have to. Uh And you can't say no to a soccer mom, no offense to soccer moms. My kids played soccer. I'm not making fun of anybody, but no, (laughs) but I, I didn't have to do one of those records. Exactly. Exactly. The freedom to say no, the freedom to pick the project you want to work on. And I, and, I, and I think a lot of people don't really fully get that sometimes, particularly early on in a career, because of what you want to, you, you know, you, you identify your, you identify yourself with, with what you do, right? And do meaning how, you know, what, how you make your living, for instance. Okay. And I think that, that, that could trap a lot of people because you, you end up in this, in this, um, like you said, getting stuck into this to a certain scene or whatnot, because you feel like that's what you're supposed to be doing. Where sometimes you gotta you gotta break out of that in order to you know steer the ship in a new direction, and I, I think that's that's admirable. Not not a lot of people get that. Sometimes people do it because they're forced to. Sometimes do it, they do it because they see the path instead. I don't know, but it's 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 something that we talk about all the time here. So that's why I think that was very interesting. I realized what it was a reason why I was so unusual in my path and figuring out was because at forty years old was when I did a career change. So at 40 years old, I have four kids, three of them in private school with mortgage. I'm a grown freaking man and I've got to figure it out. So that was some of the reasons it was like, this is what a grown man does. A grown man provides for his family and I'm going to sell crop on eBay if I have to. I don't care. You know what I mean? So anyway, fast forward 2011, uh, a friend of mine used to play bass for me at, at this at this big church, Mike Elizondo, whose career exploded. Um Got in with Dr. Dre and he was part of like all these ginormous songs, all the Slim Shady the, in the club, 50 Cent. I mean, massive, massive records. So Mike gets hired at Warner Brothers Records. I hadn't seen Mike in 17 years. I reached out to Mike. I told my wife when he got hired, I know this sounds crazy, but I think he got hired to sign the band. She's like, okay, remember we see the world half glass full. So we're always thinking of the possibilities. So we're like, I think he did. So I reach out to Mike, Mike. It's Jeffrey David. What's happening? Long time. He goes, oh my gosh, how are you? I'm like, I'm wonderful. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm, you know, I'm producing records or writing songs. I don't, I don't, I'm not at the church anymore, but I wanted to share with you a band I've been developing. That I'm super stoked on. 
And he's like, oh, I'd love to hear it. I, uh, I haven't signed anything yet. I'm wanting to sign something. Send it to me. No promises, but I'd love to hear it. I sent it to him. He goes, check you, it. You, you don't tell him it's your kids. I never start with that ever. Okay. Okay. Never. No, I just want to check. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm just a reason I don't, but I, I don't even get yeah. it now. But a week goes by. He goes, I go, he goes, check in. I check it again. Mike, have you heard it yet? He goes, I'm so sorry. I, I haven't yet. Give me another week. So long story short, four weeks go by. I say, Mike, this is your last chance. Now other labels are really coming on strong. I go, P.S. These are my four kids. He called me within the hour laughing on the phone. And he's like, dude, this is so good. This is so good. I'm obsessed. So then Mike goes, I have to, I have to meet the band. I want to see you. Please come to my studio Monday. And then all weekend long, he's fully texted me like crazy. One note for, for anybody getting into the music business or forgetting this one note who's already in the music business. You never have to wonder if someone's into something that you're doing. You will know. You will know immediately. You will know. They will blow your phone up. They will competitively try to get you before anybody else. No news is no. So just side note, that's a sidebar. <clears throat> so Mike, we go meet Mike on Monday and Mike is like, it's so great to catch up with them. My friend Mike, who back in the day needed $75 way 17 years earlier at this church, certainly doesn't need 17 or $75 anymore. This guy is a successful major player and at the most beautiful studio I've ever seen. So he's like, listen, I shared it with my boss, Rob Cavallo, who's a CEO of Warner Brothers. He's obsessed too. We're going to have a meeting on, on tomorrow morning. I'll call you. He calls me Tuesday morning, pull the band out, out of school. We're signing the band today. I call the band, get out of Spanish class, come outside now. You want to warn. Now you got to realize, though, and we're all in this together, you know, and we, we're all yeah, of course. full stoked, loving life. But we've been here before. <clears throat> we've done the high five. We've gone out to eat celebrating the Atlantic. You, yeah, you, you've had the hill, you've had the valleys. You're in another hill. Who okay. knows if it's another valley? But, but this feels good. And uh, this feels really good. So, we go to Warner. We spend three hours with Rob Cavallo and Mike and the band and, and myself. And uh, the band played something acoustically. And and Rob asked all these questions. Rob's brilliant. I so look up to Rob. And at the end of that meeting, Rob's like, we would be honored if you would sign a Warner, would you? And we said, we, you know, we all looked at each other and we said yes. And so then we took a year. We did to go out to eat. And then we took a year from there to write all these songs. And the band made it really clear that uh, they wrote songs with me and there was a chemistry there and they explained it to Rob to make sure Rob knew because what a lot of times will happen to labels, they'll just want to take the whole thing over and they will insert the usual suspects, right? Usual right. And, and a lot of the usual suspects are great. But in this, for instance, in this example, there was some real chemistry, even though we were related that we had as songwriters together. Well, I would say it's because, not just even though. Exactly. Right? Not everybody understands that. So it's a fine line right there. Okay, here I am in the manager, but I've been producing everything that the label liked to sign them, and I recorded the songs. So what, how am I going to navigate this world when Mike, the A&R, is a producer and wants to produce a record? So we had to basically just say, Mike was like, I'm going to produce this record. I don't want to do it with anybody else. In other words, I don't want to co-produce it with you. And I'm like, fine. And I'm like, I'm just going to be the best songwriter and producer I can and manager or the best songwriter and manager in this situation. Meanwhile, I'm still working with other artists, small artists, but it's growing. So we write all these songs, turn it in. There was a long process to all of it. And uh, we, the record got delayed to, to make it for two months. We were pissed. 
Because you know you you feel like two months is forever, but it's nothing. But it felt like forever. In that two months, I told the band, I'm like, let's just keep writing. Dude, we wrote every single song on that first album in those two months, including Cool Kids and Bright. Those Bright was a massive song for us too. And if we wouldn't have had that break of totally a God move again, we wouldn't have written those songs. It's crazy. So we we release a record, and now. Immediately, the band they take this song "Cool Kids" to college radio very slowly, but in the process, we the band was touring nonstop, and we are we are now in the band that's doing shows. They're doing warp tour. They're doing all these things, grinding it out. We're saying yes to everything. That's our motto: say yes, it brings a yes. Casting vision with the band all the time. Say yes, we're going to get more. So we're saying yes. We're outworking everybody we knew on Warp Tour up at 7 a.m., plastering posters and set times. And I had the band go through the lines every morning for two hours, singing songs, handing out CDs. They had no fan base whatsoever. Yeah, they got to build. We go on the road. I'm like, I'm their manager on the road. My wife's the tour manager. I'm driving the RV and we have like one tech guy. And it's like 105 degrees and we are on a truck stage at least a mile away from the Winnebago. And we had to lug gear at 105 degrees in, 104 degrees humidity. So the band's doing these shows. One person shows up, two, five, eventually 10, 50, 200, 300 people are singing these songs. And out somewhere in that process, iTunes had that free song of the week, and they chose Cool Kids as the free song of the week. And it was one of the most downloaded songs in the program that they ever had. And... Uh, Cool Kids was now making a massive, massive move around planet Earth. Like every country, it started a chart. We're going to Europe. We're touring everywhere. And it's and it's great. So I had an interesting time because I, my own attorney was like, this is your time. You probably need to let the band go travel, maybe send your wife. But you should probably – this is the time you should be staying at home now and – jumping off the success of this record cool kids and then eventually bright was going to come out and you you should you shouldn't go on the road with the band it's going to divert your attention but from from writing other things from writing songs and launching my own career more from these hit songs that i was a you know right very responsible contributor of you know part of really part of sure and uh it was also really important to try to, at the same time, teach people. This is another thing I would say to people as you're listening. It's our job to basically train people how they're supposed to see us. Okay. So I have, an, I have multiple roles. So I didn't want to be known as dad. I never used myself as dad, even though I'm very proud of being a father. Sure. But, but there's a reason. I get that totally. I'm, I mean, I'm a producer. I'm a songwriter. These are real. These are amazing songs. They wouldn't be here if I didn't contribute. And some of these, I started the songs and, you know, whatever. Um, but at the same time, as a father and your kids are ones in junior high, they're all in high school. I'm not going to let them go travel planet Earth. And I got to protect them. So I decided to go on all of it. I've only missed two shows in their entire 12 year run. And it was really important that I was there for all the warp tours and all the owl cities and neon trees and 21 pilots and all that stuff. Cause number one, I can end up mixing the live show cause I've produced records. I know how the song should sound, but secondly, I, I need to protect them. Yes. And, you know, and there were multiple times that like, 
older dudes are hitting on Sydney in the band or older girls are trying to hit on Graham or, or Noah or Jamie. And, and it's a wild world and you just, it's important. And I, and I kept fast forwarding and this is important to, to do, I think for anybody, mm-hmm. whatever you're doing and you're chasing, always fast forward to the end of your life and picture yourself and say, what am I going to care about at the end? What you're going to care about at the end is what you should care about now. Exactly. I'm not going to care about when I'm 90 years old, hopefully, okay, healthy, still doing what I do, or whenever that time comes, because we all exit, right? Whenever that time comes, I'm not going to say before my on my last breath, guys, go get me my plaques, or I just want to see my bank statement one more time, or who, who show me my Wikipedia, or show who did I write with again? I'm going to be like, we chased a dream together. We wrote songs that are meaningful to millions of people. And we did it and we love each other. Game over. What's really better than that? I did it with my family. That, and that's and that's a perspective that I think is 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 a great place to to end on as well. Cause I think, you know, what what you've what you've done here is you've really given us an interesting perspective on how a career can can take its own arc, whether you design it or not. Right, whether whether you whether you open the door or whether the door was open for you, whether you know whether you close the door, the door was closed for you, and you know that kind of thing. I think that's th- those are, you know, one door opens, uh, oh, sorry, one door closes, another door opens can be seen as a cliche, but I think it's a cliche for a reason because it's absolutely true, and that's sort of how you've really managed this through, you know, throughout. And and I think the other thing that I that I wanted to end on is just this idea of patience, this idea of using what might be considered a, you know, value in the Hills of Valley, uh, to your advantage. Um, you, you spent a long period of time in your career working just within what I will, for the, for lack of a better word, call the confines of a church, which is really would allow you to build your skills in order to take them to another place once, once you were ready to do so and so on. Like all, yeah. all those things made sense. None, none of this would be possible had you not taken those first steps, um, early on. And there's so many people that want to just jump right into the limelight, right. And then, you know, to take advantage of those, of the light not being on you in, in the best way possible, I think is another lesson, um, from your, from your, uh, career that we could kind of pull out of this, but, um, but yeah, I just just to bring it back to what you just said, I think the real the real the real greatest place to end on is just understand that, you know, look at what you're doing now with the eye of who you are in 30 years from now, and is it is it right for you, and is it something you'll be proud of? I think that's a really strong strong statement. Well, well thank you. <laughs> sorry, um, I appreciate it, man. And uh, by by taking the path I have, I've been blessed to work with some of my favorite people in the world that came around anyway by putting. By putting my family first and protecting them and uh, shepherding this career, I've got to work with some of the greatest people in the world. So I'm grateful. It's great. It's great. Well, listen, uh, good luck to you guys with what's next. Good luck on the digital tour. I think it's, it's a good thing you guys are being flexible at in these, as they say, unprecedented times to add another cliche to the conversation. <laughs> but uh, is there any, any, any last, uh, any last uh, ideas or any last things you want to promote or, or um, point out before we, before we uh, part today? Well, I would just say, hey, go get the new record. I produced this second record, Lonely Generation, and uh, co-wrote the songs with the band. And um, we're really proud of this work. And it just, it, it's so, it, the, the songs are so important for what we're going through today. And songs like Lonely Generation and Everyone Cries and and Lonely and, and these and Shut Up and Kiss Me and all these different kind of songs that basically have a deeper meaning that says, hey, you know, life is short, love each other. And uh, especially with this Corona stuff and all that, it's just... Yeah. Go dig into the record, put some headphones on, get lost in the music, and uh, I'll see you guys around. All right. Listen, thanks very much. Be well, be safe, and I hope to talk to you again someday soon. Okay, buddy. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. To keep up with Jeff and Echosmith, check out their social media profiles linked in the show notes. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.